0: Uh, this morning, though, I want to take you and uh, take you through this psalm as uh, Pastor Nathan read, Psalm 145. It's intriguing to me because David opens this psalm in one of the most interesting ways. And he esteems, as he says it here in verse 3, the unsearchable greatness of God. Notice again the verses 1 through 3. He says, I will extol thee, my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. To me, this is interesting because um, this description of God, him being great, is, is fascinating because the idea of greatness is such an elastic term. By that, it can mean different things to different people. We understand this idea of greatness, its this thing of ascribing worth or value or importance or preeminence to a certain person or, or thing or what have you. But uh, the standards by which one measures greatness is often different depending on the person. Just ask someone, you can ask someone after search, what is the greatest song ever? You will likely get a hundred different answers because the way someone comes to that greatest song is different. Just like if you were to ask who is the greatest basketball player ever, you would get a different answer. Because who measures the greatness is dependent upon that individual person, oftentimes. That's why this idea of greatness is such an interesting concept. Because David is very adamant about the fact that God is great. He, notice how many times he mentions it just in verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. He's getting across something very certain, something that he is very confident in, something that he is very sure of. And this is what intrigues me so much, because David calls God great. Someone who is greatly to be praised. But if you were to look at David's life, I think you would be hard-pressed to find a lot of external evidence of the fact that God was great to him and in him and through him. uh, Yes, David was the preeminent king of Israel. He brought Israel to its height of power and rule. But his rule was also plagued with untold amounts of controversy and conflict and scandal and strife and suffering. Not just in his monarchy. He went through constant battles and political scandals. But just think about his own family life too. It was upheaval from start to finish. David's life doesn't honestly feel that great and I can honestly say that I wouldn't want to trade positions with David. From being anointed as a young child uh, as the great and future king of Israel to being on the run from his, the very kingdom that he has been destined to lead. He goes on the run and he's a fugitive of that kingdom for his whole adolescent years. And then when he's in the kingdom and he's sitting on the throne, his own son betrays him. There's rebellions, there's revolutions, controversy, conflict, strife, struggle. His was a life I would not sign up for. David's life doesn't appear all that great. And yet here you see it, David emphasizing the greatness of God. Why? Why do you think David is describing God this way? Why do you think he is uh, so sure of this part of God's life? I think it's because this greatness of God isn't something that he just is merely asserting. It's not just some vague amorphous description of God that he's just great. I think this greatness of God is something that he experienced personally. The greatness of God and why he's so adamant throughout this whole psalm and actually throughout all of the psalms that David wrote. It's because he's, he's adamant about it because it's something that he has experienced firsthand. He has empirical evidence of God's greatness in his own life. He can look back on it. He can know that firsthand that God was unsearchably great throughout his entire life. All the years. Yes, even through all of those years of conflict and controversy and struggle and scandal. All those things, all of the mess that he had been through. He can look back and say God is greatly to be praised. For three specific reasons, I think. From this psalm, I want to look at those reasons, these sort of lessons that David learns of God's greatness, because I think we, uh, as a church, ought to learn the same lessons too. Look at verses four through seven, because here I think God, we see here David's lesson about God is great in goodness. Look at verse four. One generation, David says, shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works. And men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts. And I will declare thy greatness. They shall, shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness and shall sing of thy righteousness. Here, we have a lesson about God is great in goodness. And there's an intriguing phrase that I just love that actually just jumps out off of the page to me. And I think that encapsulates all of what David is trying to say here in this little section. And it comes in verse 7. Look at it again where he says, They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness. The memory of it. Here, David is saying, he's giving utterance and voice to the fact That he has experienced God's greatness, God's great goodness I should say, throughout the course of his life. And it's something that he only though consciously discerns and and recognizes by way of remembering it. He is looking into and looking at his past and he is remembering and seeing all of the great goodness of God. God. It is the memory of God's mighty acts and wondrous works and terrible acts, as he says, that drives him here to praise God, to worship God. It is the memory of it. He's looking back, back on all of the events that he has been brought through. And that is what is now bringing him to his knees because he recognizes as he looks back that God has never been anything but good to him. And here, as it says in verse 6, where he describes the ter- thy terrible acts, he is literally brought to a place of astonishment. To a place of just jaw-dropping wonder. At what? At these wondrous great goodness, at the wondrous great goodness of his God. He's standing here recollecting. On his God's goodness for him. And this is what he's giving voice to here. As it says in verse 5 where he says. I will speak. I will utter. I will give voice to the glorious honor of thy majesty. Because he's looking back and seeing God's goodness. Yes. Through all of that mess that he's been brought through. Here I I can't help but think of that great hymn. The hymn that we oftentimes sing. uh, Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. It's a great hymn. It's a, a hymn that I think actually is ascribing an impossible task. And that's sort of the point. If, if you were to try and sit down at your desk and take a notepad out and try and count all of the ways that you have been blessed by God, you would, not, you would run out of paper before you ran out of blessings to count. And that's sort of the point. It's impossible to count all of these blessings and such is the thing, the very truth, the very recognition that David comes to. Notice verse 2 again where he says, every day I'm going to bless you, I'm going to worship you and I will praise thy name forever and ever. And yet even then he calls God's greatness unsearchable. Even then, after saying that I'm going to bless you every day for how good you've been. It is still, you are still inexhaustibly good. You are still unsearchably good to me. This is David's conclusion. He's coming to this point where he realizes that there is no finding out the limits to God's goodness. Why? Because God, as it says there in verse 7, is great in goodness. The hymn inspires us to come to that conclusion. David does the same thing. And the whole point of this is that God's goodness is understood best in hindsight. This is what David is realizing here. He's praising the memory of God's goodness. Not that it was something that is only in the past. But it's something that he only realizes as he looks at the past. As he looks at the things that God has brought him through. As he remembers all the ways that God has been good. And here this is what he's inspiring the generation that is after him too. Look at verse 4 where he says one generation shall praise thy works to another. He is wanting and inspiring and such is the inspiration for this very psalm. That the, the generations after him would likewise see the goodness of God in their own past. That God is great in goodness. And that they too would be able to declare his mighty works for them. Even when it doesn't look like he is there with him. That they too would be captured by this goodness. That they would, be, uh, that they would know for certain. That God's goodness is an unsaleable fact of history. You see this is. The truth that we, I think we have to come to. The fact is that there is never a time when God is not good. He is always good. He is great in goodness. And he always deals with us in that way. Even when it doesn't look like it. Because it might seem like a false statement. If you look at your Facebook news feed. It might not feel, feel like God is great in goodness. But I assure you he is. It is undeniably true. It is an unassailable fact of history. That God is great in goodness. Yes even in the most intense crucible of suffering and persecution. God is good even there. I think about the very first days of the church. In the first century. When they were undergoing such intense persecution for their faith. That they were being thrown into the Colosseum to be fed to lions. Because they had faith in this Jesus of Nazareth. This one that was rumored to have resurrected from the dead. Do you think it felt good for them in that time? I don't think so. And if those who survived those years, you know what they too could sing? They could sing of the memory of God's goodness. That brought them through that time of grief and persecution and trial. And we too can sing that same chorus. Sing the chorus of the memory of God's great goodness. Oftentimes it doesn't feel like life is, life is good. You know that, that silly, like uh, I think it's a bumper sticker or a t-shirt where it just is a smiling face and it says life is good. It doesn't always feel that way, though. It doesn't always feel like that is true. And I think it's because we are rarely able to discern what is happening other than what is happening right now. We can't discern the future. We don't know what the days may hold ahead of us. We are finite creatures. We have a limited view of what we can know and perceive. We have tunnel vision. We can only see the right here and the right now. We don't know all of the things that God is orchestrating all around us, that God is working out all around us behind the scenes constantly. He is always working. We may only be able to see A, B, and C, but He is already working on X, Y, and Z ahead of us. He's working all the way. Why? Because He is infinite. He goes ahead of us. He knows the ends before they have even started. He is the Alpha and the Omega, it says in Revelations. He is the one who has already ordained everything to come about according to his purposes. We are right here in the moment. And sometimes the moments don't feel good. You know, they say hindsight is 20-20. You can look back and Get a really clear picture of what life was hap- what life was looking like. I would say this: that the, that the Christian's hindsight is nothing but God's goodness. You can look back and you can sing of the memory of God's goodness. I'll give you an example. In 2017, I was hired by a church to be their student pastor. It was a position I had longed for for a long time. I had known for many, many years that God had wanted me in ministry. So I looked at this opportunity as sort of the position, so to speak, as the plan for my life. Yet, I don't want you to, but if you were to look at my resume, uh, that that position is only a blip on the radar. It only lasts about three months. And why? It's because I realized really quickly early on that I was not in the right place, that I had sort of jumped the gun of what God wanted me to do. So I went to this place. I was sacrificing. I was driving almost an hour to get to this place to uh, work in this church. I was being exhausted and strained and pulled because uh, I was still working a 40-hour-a-week uh, a, a job plus this uh, position in this church on top of it. And I was trying to do all of these things because I thought that this is what God wanted me to do. And very quickly I learned that this is not where I needed to be. And so I made the very difficult decision, at least in that moment, to leave that church. And for that specific moment, it felt... That, It felt like I was leaving what God wanted me to do. But all the while, God was teaching me. He was molding me. He was fashioning me, shaping me into the person that he wanted me to be. And in that moment, yes, it didn't feel good, but I look back on that experience now. And I can definitely sing of the memory of God's goodness because he brought us out of that. And three years later, I'm your pastor at Stonington Baptist Church. I'm here serving out of all of the things that God has brought me and my family through. And that one especially. That one including that one. In the moments your trial, your controversy, your struggle is, might not, and I will say probably definitely not, going to feel good. And that's because God's goodness is always understood in hindsight. You can see it. How God is graciously working out all of these things to His perfect ends, to His uh, divine purposes. When I left that church, I didn't think that God would bring me a a thousand odd miles north to serve in a church. In that moment, I felt like my, quote, dreams of being a pastor were crumbling before me. God had a lot different plans, (laughs) a lot better plans, a lot better plans than I had for myself. God is always at work, and he was always working so that we might see his goodness in front of our faces, in front of our eyes. God's goodness is always understood in hindsight. And I'll also say this, that God's goodness is always better than we remember it. God is way better than you remember him, because your memory is also faulty. You probably forget some of the blessings. So when you sit down and count them, you're probably going to leave off a few. A few hundred, maybe. God is way better than you remember him. He's always been good. And we can be likewise confident, just like David, to sing of the memory of God's great goodness. But also notice, number two, look down at verses eight through nine, because also God is great in mercy. Look at verse 8. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. Here David offers, I think, the best description, the best succinct description of our Lord's character. Of his disposition towards us. He describes God as what? Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and of great mercy. This, I think, is evident. If you look up mercy in the dictionary, it'll read like this. Mercy is defined as compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Basically, mercy is defined as not punishing someone who totally deserves to be punished. And here, this is God's description of himself. Notice, David says that he is slow to anger. He has the right to be angry with his creation, but he is slow to anger. And instead, actually, of anger, he is merciful. He is dealing with us in great mercy. He does not pass eternal punishment on you and on me because uh, of, of what we have done, even though we most definitely deserve it. Instead, as he says here, he treats everyone, as it says in verse 16, every living thing, he treats all, every living thing, with great mercy. Why? Because all of the iniquities and injustices that have been about in this world have already been paid for by Jesus. Therefore, he can deal with everyone in mercy. He is not giving someone what they deserve. He is not giving you and me what we deserve. Why? Because Jesus has already taken what we deserve. Jesus has already taken it on his shoulders. And here, David is giving voice to that promise. The promise of the one-day Messiah that would come through and deal with all of these injustices and iniquities. He's giving voice to that wonderful truth. That God is slow to anger. And abounding in great mercy. Because of what his son has done. And here, I love what he says in verse 9. He says, the Lord... As he says is good to all. And his tender mercies are over all his works. Here David is also giving voice to another truth. That I think is often unnoticed. Is the fact that God's mercy is everywhere. Whether we believe in it or not. Whether you believe in Jesus or not. You breathe the same air. The Christian and the atheist live on the same planet. Breathing the same air. That's mercy. That's God being slow to anger. Yes, even to those that reject him. Even to those that are not believing in him. This is how expansive, how great, how marvelously wonderful this mercy of God is. It is allowing both the believer and the unbeliever to continue to live on this this planet. One writer says it this way, that mercy is in the air which we breathe, the daily light which shines upon us, the gracious rain of God's inheritance. It is the public spring for all the thirsty, the common hospital for all the needy, and all the streets of the church are paved with these stones of great mercy. Such is what David is singing to here, that God's mercy is expansive, it is great but yet at the same time, I love how he contrasts this expansive, great mercy with also this tender mercy. we look at verses 14 and 15. Because he hints at this tender mercies are over all his works in verse nine, but look at verse 14, "The Lord upholdeth all that fall." You see, this is the wonderful thing about our Lord. That he exercises his great expansive mercy in the smallest of ways to uphold those who fall. To sustain and support those who are constantly stumbling, constantly falling, constantly bumbling about by themselves who cannot get out of their own way. This is the mercy on behalf of those who keep on falling. That don't just fall one time and get back up and are fine. That keep on stumbling. That keep on skinning their knee. That keep on going back to the same sorts of sins. That keep on repeating the same patterns of rebellion and strife and struggle. God is merciful to those who fall and keep on falling. God is tender and compassionate. He attends and supports and sustains those who get knocked down or perhaps even knocked themselves down by their own sin. This is the greatness of God's mercy brought to bear and to us. Creatures on the third rock from the sun. On one of the smallest planets. And yet God is concerned for us. God is merciful to you and to me. Yes, even when we fall. This to me is one of the most amazing truths I can think of. He's merciful to those who keep on falling. It's sort of like a mother who tells their toddler to stop jumping on the bed. (laughs) And then you go downstairs, and then you hear that sound. You know that they have disobeyed and disregarded what you have just told them. And then you hear another sound a large thud, followed by a wail, followed by a really intense cry. You know what has happened. They disobeyed, they jumped on the bed, and they fell and they hurt themselves. What does the mother do? Maybe you do this, I don't know. Maybe you go in and be like, I told you so. Or maybe you go in and you rush to help them in their injury. The mercy of God is in that. in a mother going to their son. Intending to their injuries that they have inflicted upon themselves. That they have done by themselves disobeying. And what does the mother do? She rushes in and mercifully ensures her child's safety. Instead of berating them for what they shouldn't have been doing. That's God. That's the Lord who upholds all those who fall. We are like children. Disobeying. Jumping on the bed. Thinking we're okay. And when we fall, what does God do? He comes beside us and he picks us up again. Exercising great expansive mercy in the most small and tenderest of ways for we who keep on falling. He meets us in our willful rebellion as it says in Romans 5 that he comes and demonstrates love for us even while we were yet sinners. Even there, in the midst of our sin, he dies for us. He exercises and exhibits great mercy by not letting us die, by him taking on the death for our sins in himself. He gives us mercy. By instead of condemning us to eternity and hell, he takes our condemnation for us. So that we likewise can sing with Paul in Romans 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation for them who are called the sons of God. There's none because Jesus has taken it. In mercy, he has taken it off of us. He deals tenderly with those who fall and keep on falling. David surely knew about this. David experienced this firsthand. That even after his great immoral fall, he is called the man after God's own heart. That he is known as one through whom God did great and mighty things. Why? Because God is great in mercy. But lastly, look at verse 10. God is great in goodness. God is great in mercy. But lastly, God is great in righteousness. Look at verse 10 where it says... All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. David is here praising the works of God. Here, lastly, God is great in righteousness. And you can see this as David is here praising the works that give way to the majesty of God's kingdom. And I love how David is describing this kingdom here. It would, it would almost appear as if David is describing something that he has seen. That's something he has been through and walked among its walls. But of course, David had not seen God's kingdom. And he would not in his own lifetime. He was only promised this kingdom. David was given the promise of this kingdom that would come about. And yet he is so sure about it. He is so confident that God would bring this kingdom to bear onto this world. Because he knew of God's greatness. That's why he's singing of it. Talking about it so fervently. So adamantly. Adamantly. He is sure, even yes, despite all of the of the odds about, despite all of the surrounding evidences, he is sure that God is going to deal with him in a righteous future because He has dealt with him righteously in the past. The kingdom wasn't fulfilled in David's days, and my friends, even yes, and even now, the kingdom is not yet fulfilled. God's kingdom is still a future prospect. Something we look forward to him bringing about in our world. It is something that we look fervently forward to. But we likewise can be just as confident as David was. He was confident that this kingdom would come about. That this kingdom would be everlasting. That it would have no end. It would have no failures. No weaknesses. No iniquities. Nothing about it would be tainted by sin. It would be a kingdom, as he says later on, of righteousness. Why? Because he says in verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. He knows, he is confident that this kingdom is going to come about because he knows that the character of his God is one of complete and total righteousness. Such is the movement of God upon this world. God, from the very beginning, from Genesis 3, has been planning this redemption of his own creation. He's been moving everything forward in all points and times in man's history to establish redemption and to establish his righteous kingdom on this earth. And the chief emblem of that kingdom is righteousness. He established this, yes, through his son Jesus Christ. And he is the true ruler, the true judge of all things that are righteous. And such it is, and so it is that we as the church must look to Christ alone for righteousness in this world of ours. We cannot bring it about. You and I, as we've seen in Mark, uh, in our study, we are incapable of bringing in the kingdom of God. Why? Because we are fickle, frail, frail human beings. We are not able, of, capable of achieving righteousness, much less establishing it here in this lifetime. And that isn't meant to get you discouraged. That's meant to free you from the burden of establishing such a kingdom. The burden is not on you to establish a righteous kingdom. As Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 16. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is going to be the one that builds it. He is going to be the one that guards it. He is going to be the one that sustains it. The responsibility then for you and I is one of faithful dependence on God to do the work that he's going to do. Two, as another great hymn says, this might seem too simple, but to trust and obey. That's what it comes down to. Guess what? You're here this morning. I'm going to already spoil Ecclesiastes for you. You want to know how Solomon ends the study of Ecclesiastes? Two things. Fear God and keep his commandments. Or, in layman's terms, trust and obey. That's the summary of the Christian life. We don't have to uh, work about ourselves through any sorts of activism or involvement in any sorts of things to try and incur and bring in the kingdom of God that we can usher in some sort of grand utopia here on earth. That's impossible. We have to trust and obey that, yes, despite all of the evidences, despite all of the circumstances, that God's kingdom is still moving forward. That, yes, God's truth is marching on. That God's kingdom will come about. It will be established here on this earth. And I think it is fitting to talk about this because, yes, we just celebrated July 4th. And the message of faithful dependence isn't a very American thing. We're independent. We're pioneers. We're patriots. We don't want to be dependent on anyone. We don't want to be dependent on anyone or anything. But my friends, what's going to make America great again is has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with who is voted into the Oval Office. It has everything to do with faith. It has everything to do with who we trust and obey. Who we are fearing and whose commandments we are keeping. And it starts with us as the church. Until we are utterly convinced that God's kingdom is outside of us. And it's only something God can accomplish. We will be uh, people who are always looking to ourselves to establish something that only God can establish. And such is the message. The message of faithful dependence on God's righteousness and his righteous acts to bring about this kingdom. Despite all of our frailty. Despite all of our failures. Despite all of our forgetting. Despite all the S of our falling. That God will bring in this kingdom. And it will be a kingdom of utter and complete and total righteousness. Where, yes, as it promises, there will be no fear. There will be no death. There will be no more dying. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more crying. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more prejudice or bias. There will be nothing but love and purity and holiness and righteousness. Why? Because it will be a kingdom established by God, not by frail, fickle human beings. It'll be a kingdom with the true and better king sitting on its throne. Not a corrupt magistrate. Not anyone who's been bought off. It'll be a kingdom ruled by the one who is righteous in and of himself. This is what makes God great. He is great in goodness. He is great in mercy. And he is great in righteousness. And it's all of this for us. He is all of those things for his own glory. And yes, for us. For you and me here in this room. And this is the point of the psalm. To remember God's great goodness. And great mercy. And great righteousness. To sit and reflect And know that God has been great in all of these ways in the past. Therefore, we can be sure, we can be confident, we can be utterly uh, convinced that he's going to be great in all of these ways in the future. Therefore, we can live in the present. Knowing that he has all of these things worked out in himself. He has all of these things orchestrated and ordained and purposed in his timing, and his divine will. Therefore, we can live in the present in faith. Trusting and obeying in his greatness for us. Let us pray at this time.